smoking a cigar while I cook your dinner and don't do not mind the ash that we have not yet discovered that if you eat the ash from a cigar it will give you uh, blindness it'll give you stress <laughs> blindness <laughs> this is our third recording of a uh, night of the uh, episode a uh, horror episode of night of the living uh, hunter happy October everybody Oh, oh. Happy Shocktober. Ah, the scariest ah. thing about this episode is that uh, we've recorded it. This is our third time recording it. Both Bennett and my personal computer has crashed. And we're going to be giving you an in-depth look on the movie A Night of the Living Hunter. 1955's own Night of the Living Hunter starring Robert Mitchum. Some, uh, some other characters. Uh... Uh, directed by Charles Lawton, former uh, he was a uh, he was born in 1899 in Scarborough, England. Was an English stage actor, and he uh, turned to directing with this flick. Now, uh, I'm sure. I'm sorry, I seem to be taken by a case of stress sleep. Stress blindness combined with stress sleeping. I just got off the. I just got off a 92-hour workday, and I'm, you must forgive me, Bennett. You'll have to pick up while I uh, attempt to reawaken myself of this eternal slumber I seem to be slipping into. Have you ever? Have you ever sniffed smelling salts? It's something I've always wanted to do. Oh yeah, we actually bought some in college, and. Um, one, t- one, the most memorable part of having those is being in the elevator, and we stopped on this floor, and I was standing with my friend Josh, and um, his other friend. He's waiting to get on the elevator, but we're going up, and he has to go down, and the door's open, and he's like, "Oh no, I'm going down." We're like, "Okay, we're going up," and <laughs> my friend Josh goes, "Oh, cool. Well, uh, smell this." He smells it, and just the look on his face <laughs> is pure terror. And then the doors close, and this kid has just no idea what what he uh, what he went through, wow. smelling like phosphorus. <laughs> it's crazy. A, a smell a human unprepared should never have to go through in his life. It's like it's probably similar to like uh, working in a coal mine and breaking into the wrong rock or something, and then just dying five minutes after. Uh-huh. I'm the proverbial canary in a coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems the co- the coal miner has become the canary in this here situation. I must go. <laughs> this uh, this movie's very uh, very hot, very sweaty. Uh, the characters mm-hmm. do all really talk like this. Um, it was uh, critically uh, panned upon its initial release. Um, was it panned, or was it just not well attended? I think it. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't know. Everybody seems to suggest it was Pampy right. I mean, for all I know, it was just sort of... For all I know, it flew under the radar. That seems... At the very least, it seems to have made uh, not much of an impact. New York Times called Bosley Crowther. Famously bad film critic, yeah. (laughs) Called the film in the New York Times a weird and intriguing endeavor. 
saying, Unfortunately, the story and the thesis presented by Mr. Grubb had to be carried through by Mr. Lawton to a finish, and it is here that he goes wrong. For the evolution of the melodrama and the after the threatened, frightened children flee home angles off into that allegorical contrast of the forces of evil and good. Now, he does the kind of thing that any bad critic would do, is describe exactly the things that make this such a special and beautiful film, and uh, says that that's why it's bad. Um, which actually is kind of the gift of the bad critic. They end up illuminating things that even good critics can't point out. Mm -hmm. He uh, Imagine calling a movie weird. and you're, Imagine being someone who's paid to write movie reviews and going, that is, <laughs> that is a weird sort of film oh ooh, gave me the i think <laughs> i think uh that was when like this the word weird was saved for when like a uh, night crawler crime climbs out of your cousin's penis <laughs> right like, yeah actually the strangest thing you've ever <laughs> was, seen uh-huh right it was a fairly extreme adjective <laughs> yeah ooh, weird <laughs> like if someone actually if, if a fucking alien actually landed on earth bosley carlin would go i'm like ooh. Now weird. that is weird. Oh. <laughs> Honey, we've, we've graduated past strange into weird territory. Uh, Things now have let me just take uh, a turn for the weird. The weird. Uh, Bennett, do you want to recount a few of the most beautiful, indelible images of this film? Um. Yeah. I mean, to give you the quick plot uh, synopsis, basically, he uh, um. Uh, Robert Mitchum's a serial killer, kills widows, uh, steals their money, he's on the run, uh, steals a car, and he gets arrested, and his uh, his cellmate is this guy who's just robbed a bank and made off with $10,000 and left it with his children. Um, so he marries their mother, uh, Shelly Winters, kills her, and then starts pursuing them uh, across the Ohio River. So uh, there's a scene where he's speaking to those two kind of spherical um, ice cream parlor owners. <laughs> um, the Spoon family, which is very funny. I always love when, when when someone just by chance has a name that makes sense for their profession. You know, it's very uh, it's very Colonial mm -hmm. Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, so they're chatting. He's pretending that uh, Shelley Winters has left him to to go be with another man, and he's he's making a big scene of she left me, she turned me away from bed on our honeymoon, and these two like folksy <laughs> people are like in tears at the thought of this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're they're really appalled. Uh, tr speaking to a stranger about whether or not he and his wife have consummated their marriage, um, uh -huh. and uh, he says something along the lines of like, "Well, I I don't think she'll be docking at our doorstep again anytime soon." And it cuts to she's underwater, and her hair is sort of like blowing at with all this like uh, seaweed. Really, kind of an as Bosley Crowther would call it a, a weird image. There's that great sequence. Um, he's it's it's. Hilarious, and as we talked about before, it's a sign that I guess just like how uh, how bored these people are, how how just the so the thought of somebody new, particularly someone who's new and is also a man of the cloth, is so exciting to them that they'll literally like anything he says. They're like, my oh my. He, he sets about trying to like convert the whole community to his weird like fire and brim his weird eerie fire and brimstone <laughs> sort of version of Christianity. Um, you were saying though, uh -huh. I think you were alluding to the the story. He tells about love and hate. He tell he's got these love and hate nuck tats um that are very weird that uh 
he uses to tell a story about it's kind of, it's kind of a story that doesn't make sense. It's he's talking about Cain and Abel, and then just goes into love defeating hate, and everyone's like, "Well, I'll be." That is the truest form of the story I had ever heard. <laughs> he's just kind of a hot guy that comes through town, and everyone's like. What a man. He speaks of God and the devil in such hallowed tones. It makes a woman want to leave her burly-ass husband for for once and for all. Yeah, he's kind of a soothsayer, but he's got a sinister plan underneath it all. Mm-hmm. And he's, he always like, the... he's always like seconds away from being caught in the act of like harassing one of the kids or like... Uh... Yeah, doing something like menacing. Throwing them down a set of basement stairs, holding a knife up to their necks. Which, I don't, I mean, maybe it's a, you know, I'm victim blaming here, but uh, why don't the kids just go like, this guy tried to kill me multiple times. He's he's a, he's a soothsayer. He's trying to steal the money, which is in this doll here. Yeah, I, I think that's something that the movie captures really well, though, about like the kind of like spookiness. It's one of the things that's often so scary about when you're a kid is that like, and it's not just something that happens in like sitcoms and movies. Just like you could be telling a hundred percent, like here's okay, here is what happened, and you know, by virtue mm-hmm. of the fact that you're not some like soothsaying minister, by virtue of the fact that you're not older, you know, you're not taken seriously. Um, it's very much a film that's shot from like the kid's point of view, and it has this kind of eerie Southern Gothic, um, you know, grim fairy tale sort of aspect mm-hmm. to it. Um, before we got cut off the first time. You were talking about these uh, shots that focus on kind of the natural world, how like animals are are, um, are shown to be almost these like silent observers uh, to the action on screen. Uh, do you have any more thoughts on the animals? Well, I was uh, I, I was thinking specifically of them floating down the Colorado River. It's not the Colorado the, River. The the Chattahoochee River. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a note from Robert Mitchum's book and just say nonsense that seems to fit with my story. Uh, they're running, they're rambling down the Chattahoochee River when little little Tyler starts singing a beautiful song on the boat, and just as she starts singing this hymn, a beautiful spider web seems to be the size of a skyscraper, but it's merely the an imprint on the living land of the Lord in this little tiny-ass-looking-ass Bethlehem-ass place. There's a spider web that comes off across the street, screen, foregrounding the beautiful lull and whippoorwill of the boat in the background as a little Tyler sings her song. And then we get this shot of a bullfrog at the edge of the Colorado singing a seemingly singing along to this slipshod song of a girl sprung from her own little manger and uh it seems that maybe just maybe we're being uh gonna cut the bullshit here (laughs) I can't say it in this voice it seems that the director is um, giving us these atmospheric elements of the prairie, of this beautiful kind of low angle of uh, riverbed and the surrounding farm scenery uh, in order to 
get us into a place that doesn't and i think this is what that stupid critic um was talking about in that this is a weird and intriguing movie in that we're given the atmosphere of a kind of beautiful prairie of something of like a you know 50s television show um but with the kind of sinister elements of a high stakes murder mystery movie um and I think this is like illuminated most in these shots going down the river, showing like bullfrogs and spiderwebs and these very beautiful shots um, that incorporate like life and death. Uh, and the director kind of puts us into this kind of sleepy state. Uh, and these shots of animals don't do anything to get us into the perspective of the character. But I think get us into this sort of hypnotized area as a viewer. And a lot of what we are shown is an effort to kind of get us into a place where we consider life and death and God and the devil and the beauty of, of like the prairie and, and the sinister behavior of like a murderer in this, in this place kind of combines all these different elements to like get us into this really unique kind of viewing state um and not in, instead of making us feel like um this is a scary place or this is a horrifying movie um this is like all of these different elements coming together of good and evil and 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 innocence and sinister adult behavior um, and, and, and I think anybody who watches this movie will, will feel by the end that they're just kind of like, well, that was strange. Like I, it doesn't operate in the same way as like a horror movie would now, especially now that horror has become, I mean, I guess in the fifties horror was like a very specific genre, but maybe it didn't have all the trappings that horror movies these days come with. How do you feel about that, Bennett? Um, yeah, this movie is sort of tonally. Uh, kind of all over the place, but I, I think that's kind of in keeping. It's it's um, it, there's there's not really a movie like it atmosphere wise. Like the mm. the bit where they're hiding in the uh, in the cellar and he kind of like peers down and goes like children. It's 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 terrifying. But then it, it, as he's like chasing them around, it becomes this kind of like ridiculous slapstick thing. I, I don't know. I think he pulls off the uh, the sort of tonal. Um, jumble there Mm -hmm. or at the end when he's when he's kind of facing down Lillian Gish and he's like whooping and like cawing like some sort of like uh I don't know like some sort of creature there's something kind of like ridiculous about that too but I I think it works I think it contributes to the sense that we're I don't know not in the real world we're in this sort of Mm -hmm. um expressing expressionist fantasia that can only exist on film you know yeah and I think that um Charles Lawton is is a guy that is there's recordings of him just doing like Bible readings in a dramatic way. And it's amazing. I mean, this is a guy who like really feels in his heart. I feel that like good and evil exist side by side in this terrible landscape that we walk, uh, that I, I think that, you know, anything that is maybe confusing in terms of how we understand Hollywood movies uh, can be explained by this is Charles Lawton's like what he believes is 
that that every every shot is filled with such passion and such uh like a reach at at showing something that's really beautiful like a spider web with a rowboat going by um or you know even having someone kill somebody in a room that looks like a cathedral anything that's strange in this is makes sense because ev- everything seems to be filmed and scripted and shot with such like passion i guess from all of the actors in it and and the director because he seems to believe in it so much anything that might not make sense in a typical horror movie makes sense because spirit of the cinema was this the uh, was this the first time you'd seen it uh i saw it once before and i was perplexed I uh, I had totally forgotten that there's like a framing device um, that it, it's introduced as if Lily and Gish is telling these kids a story. Uh, we talked mm. in one of the first two recordings that how weird and eerie that opening shot is of all of the uh, <laughs> the sort of faces in the sky, kids like, floating you know, in space. Yeah, very kind of spooky. It kind of lets you know what you're in for from the beginning. This is going to mm. be a a spooky, bizarre tale of Carl. <laughs> um, there's like points where it's all it gets kind of like hokey and kind of almost like prairie ass like it does act like a story being told but i'm never taken out of it for that reason if anything it makes it more kind of like quaint and and uh it 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 almost makes it more effective as a story of good and evil when good and evil becomes so kind of apparent um where like the good people are so different from the bad people but i think they're all characterized with the same kind of god-fearing characteristics and so this world it doesn't make it 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 i don't know i guess makes it more believable or more effective to understand that like everybody's living under the same like fear of god but people are people take advantage of that or succumb to it and far different ways um there's that great shot when he's just sort of silhouetted uh in the distance which apparently they did with like a little person on a miniature pony like it's actually like a forced perspective shot really kind of scary stuff that he's just sort of like relentlessly pursuing them you might say like death itself relentlessly pursues, pursues uh, us from all. the moment we leave the womb um there's the great use of the, the that the this hymn, uh, leaning on the everlasting arms, which you'll also remember is used in uh, in the Coen Brothers' True Grit, uh, was used last year mm. in uh, a movie that I like less and less the more I think about it. Um, First Reformed, the, the the Paul Schrader film, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> spooky hymn. Uh huh. Spooky who? Uh, the the hymn. Ah, yeah. Uh, the <laughs> the. Uh... And well, at at a at a fateful scene in this movie when Jillian is holding the shotgun to Robert Mitchum at the end, and uh, he's singing the song, and she ends up singing it with him, as if uh, you know the 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 song of God is just too hard to resist. To these two people, it might mean the it might have the same effect of like you know stirring the spirit inside you, but uh, Robert Mitchum is the spirit of the devil inside him, and the same song that can stir a woman just near to the hand of god will bring another man to the depths of the devil's asshole <laughs> <laughs> oh there's another great intercutting uh sequence when she's uh 
when Shelly Winters is cleaning up uh, the the remnants of a bunch of like Sundays at uh, at Spoon's Ice Creamery, and Mrs. Spoon <laughs> is very like nosily talking about how she needs to remarry, and they keep cutting back to um, uh, the Reverend's like train chugging in like all black, just with that huge plume of smoke. Choo choo. Yeah, he's wearing that little George Railroad Martin hat. Yeah. <laughs> Bennett, if you had to rate. The Word of God, a.k.a. the Bible, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate it? Uh, it's like an 8. Yeah, it's not perfect, but... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like people on set of this movie were actually reading the Bible, like, when they were in their green room. Apparently Charles Lawton was not a fan of, uh, was not a fan of James Agee's. Although, apparently fairly recently they found a first draft of the script and it actually is pretty close to what ended up on screen. It's just, oh, really? you know, full of uh, probably unnecessary head-up ass-ass uh, descriptions ramblings. and stuff. Yeah. Because, I mean, you've read some AG. The man really, uh, the man really loved to, uh, you know, go on some flights of fancy, so to speak. Yeah, love to dive in. S- similarly to how I do when I just completely forget what I'm talking about and go on a tangent, uh, James AG will write for hundreds of pages about, like, I don't know, where a tablecloth was made uh-huh. and all the families that had to die. Um, but he he's like, I, I, I think... He, Ag is like a uh, kind of such a contrast to Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton seems like he has the spirit of the holy in him, and he like seeks the wholesome. You could tell by like how this movie's wrapped up and how the the final scenes are of like children are resilient creatures, and then it like fades into like a like a really wholesome prairie house shot. Uh, I feel like James Agee is kind of like he has the the whole God fearing part, but he's also just like a, the ma- a man of the devil, uh-huh. and that he's like seen too much. I am. Um, I, I wonder to what degree James Agee viewed it as just a paycheck versus. Well, I mean, I guess you don't write a two hundred eighty page script for a ninety minute movie if you receive a paycheck. <laughs> but um, I don't know. He obviously wrote a lot autobiographically about like losing his father at a young age. I wonder. Mm. If, I wonder to what degree he related to the experience of the children. And I wonder, I wonder how much of James Agee's self we see embodied in the film. Perhaps both in the characters of the children and in the characters uh, in the character of uh, Reverend Powell, yeah, terrifying man. Yeah, Robert Mitchum like also sure. had his dad crushed by a railroad car when he was two years old. So I imagine uh, they had a lot to. Uh, it's it's it seems like this this movie was a real meeting of the minds, which might 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 make it such a special movie. All the stars of this movie all have really interesting film backgrounds and um all the people that worked on it uh, like from the the people who shot it to the the art director to uh the director himself all had a really unique vision for this um i know that the the way it was shot like the first crew of cameras was shot from like regular it was kind of like higher higher uh, angle shots and then the second crew was shooting from like a children's perspective like low angle shots um and and in the way that it was lit um it's a hot like a strong contrast between like lightness and darkness um from like how day shots are shot how night shots are shot and then how like indoor shots are stark light with very dark darkness um it seems like Charles Lawton made an effort for everybody in this to be on board with like 
kind of every aspect of this has to represent this kind of life and death, uh, lightness and darkness, or uh, uh, innocence and corruption side by side. That like this was all like a group effort for everybody to kind of make something that was really meaningful to them, or at least was like a testament to like their love for life. Yeah, it, it seems as if Lawton really took the experience of directing for the first time, especially seriously. Uh, by all accounts, did a lot of like studying of, of classic film technique. He said he watched all of D.W. Griffith's films most oh, more yeah. than once. Uh, and you can see a lot of those those techniques that we uh, associate with Griffiths, like those Irish shots. There's that weird kind of Irish shot when he's walking into the house and it focuses on the kids in the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously even the presence of Lillian Gish herself seems to be kind of a, a reference to Griffith and his work. And then so much of the film, uh, as well as it uses sound, but with like the constant singing, so much of it is so um, is so stark and like... I don't know. You you could see it working as a silent film. I mean, you just watched uh, Vampire fairly recently, right? Um, or no, Nosferatu. Um, I'm sure you could see the kind of similarities in the uh, the chiaroscuro lighting. And, uh... <laughs> I think that something about Charles Lawton being not like a not a seasoned director made him bring such an earnestness to this that makes it so memorable um everything he seems to be reaching for like the most beautiful shot the most beautiful representation of each situation and like the most stark contrast between like you know good and evil sitting in the same room uh you know personified by the love and hate knuckle tattoos yeah it's hard to imagine how he could have topped this the uh apparently the only other project that he ever considered working on um was an adaptation of the naked and the dead the uh norman mailer novel Damn! Yeah, wow, he would have uh, right? talk yeah, about a meeting would've... of the minds. I think the closest, <laughs> I think the closest thing we've gotten to this sort of meeting of the minds, this sort of melding of perspectives, was when we watched uh, Cowboys and Aliens, which, of course, you'll remember featured mm-hmm. Brian Grazer, mm-hmm. Ron Howard, and Steven Spielberg as producers, with uh, our man Johnny Favs, Johnny Faves, uh, in yeah. the director's chair, wearing the jodhpurs and the uh, beret. You know. Hold yeah. the megaphone, so to speak. I feel like if John Favreau was born like back in the day, he would have had maybe similar ideas to Charles Lawton, but because he's a corrupted millennial, the only contrast he can think of in his in his head are like, well, cowboys and aliens. <laughs> right, the two genders. The two <laughs> genders. That's like the furthest thing I could think of from each other. I feel like uh, you know, we don't have we don't have movies like this one because uh People don't fear God anymore. What an unusual movie. I, I guess, I mean, I, you can see why people at the time were sort of like, oh, I'm sick to my stomach. I really, like, I don't know what, I mean, I think the book must have been a bestseller. Those people must have had some idea what they were expe- what to expect. Even watching it now, it still has a really just odd quality. Like, I don't know... I don't know which end is up. I don't know if it's a horror, who's going to die. Or, like, people are killed, but then the next the next shot you'll be in, like, this beautiful prairie. And uh, even even at the end, like, when that woman is doing, like, her monologue with uh, talking about how wholesome children are, it's like, mm-hmm. wow, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that ending, I'd completely forgotten about that. That really stuck out to me as a little incongruous. It goes on for forever. I think it's what makes this movie kind of perfect. It is just so unique and so, I don't know, passionately informed by like this vision of the director to make something that is like 
I don't know, true to himself because it's a, it's not true to the audience. It doesn't seem to be wanting the audience to 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 fall into their usual kind of viewing process. He seems to want to like do something completely new um, based on this book that he was obviously inspired by. So they, um, I, we, we've talked a little bit about them moving in with um, Lily and Gish sort of toward the end of the film in this uh, group of orphan children that she raises. The Reverend tracks them down by like sort of trying to court the one uh, the one girl that they're living with. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually, I like how many different little windows we get into people's lives um, that are kind of like one-off characters in this movie. Like I think of like The Undertaker in the beginning after mm. like The Hanging. Um, mm-hmm. how we see him like kind of like go home and like talking about how much he hates his job or then when, yeah. when she's when she's going out to like the soda fountain with uh, the reverend we see the kind of like shit boy kids have been waiting around for her um, <laughs> and like the tugboat drunk who we see yeah. like, twice I love it he finds Shelly Winter's body and then all of this everything goes awry in this movie because he's too paranoid and drunk to think that they would believe that he just <laughs> happened upon her body <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He's such a drug paranoid narcissist that he's like, no, kid, no, 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 they're going to think I did it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like a lot of the people in this movie, specifically Robert Mitchum, like grew up in this setting. And the the performance, especially of that drunk tugboat guy, seems so informed by probably someone he knew or Mm -hmm. it's wholesome even in the representation of the most unwholesome guy in this community. I like how it becomes decidedly unwholesome right before it becomes almost like a Norman Rockwell painting at the end. Like when the town mm. is like whipped up into a frenzy and they're going to drag the Reverend out of like jail, it becomes like a really pretty harrowing once again, that scene. I mean, the town, they're really like yipping and hollering. It becomes mm-hmm. very, very uneasy. <laughs> um, I mean, I think uh, an important thing about this movie that I, okay, I'm going to make it topical. Um, like a movie like the Joker is indulging in all of the like dark sides of kind of our reality and, or, or even let's say like Batman or any action movie. Now it's like we, here's the darkest, most vile underbelly of humanity. And, and this is, this is what it's like to indulge in that for a little bit. I feel like a movie like this is able to show what the most painful betraying sides of like our you know us as a as a human race are like being murdered using good in or pretending you're good and actually being a fucking horrible person like lying directly to a whole town of people's face it uses it 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 contains all of that all of the horribly immoral things like just slapping an innocent woman in the face but also in between all of that and uh throughout this we have these people who only want to do good and do like right by god and and in the end like like love if it's love versus hate love does win out and and all the all the evil things that we've seen robert mitchum do are counteracted by all the amazing things that like all the people in this community the woman who adopts the children at the end like what her whole life is dedicated to like all of this, the horrible things that we indulge in by watching this movie or what, you know, it must have been horrible by 1955 standards of like watching a movie and seeing horrible things happen are kind of balanced or at least um, the evil is fought against by these really loving characters. And I think that that's kind of missing from 
I don't know, television or movies now is like we, we get only the horrible things because we want to just indulge in like, uh, you know, seeing boobs and uh, and seeing people murdered, you know, in a show like Law and Order SVU, that just happens and we get to indulge in it. But this movie still takes very seriously the idea that this stuff is might be like corrupting us just to watch and uh, and 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 reinforcing the idea that like good will still prevail in the face of maybe like me showing you all this uh, horrible stuff. So it is kind of like a reckoning in that way of confronting you with like the horrible side of humanity, but um, trying to make a case for maybe like that being a good person is, is worthwhile. Yeah. I think it only really finds that answer though in, in Lily and Gish's character at the end. I think, I think that we're we're meant to view the rest of the townspeople as like however well meaning, ultimately sort of like dupes and ultimately too easily corruptible by someone right. like the Reverend. I think mm-hmm. I think he's perhaps saying something about like how how all of this like religious rhetoric is ultimately like insufficient because it's so easily perverted and even right. you know, even perfectly well meaning people are so easily won over by that. And I also mm-hmm. think at the end when they're whipped up into sort of like a lynch mob, I think we're most supposed to see them as having been having seen them see see them as having been somehow corrupted by uh the reverend and his influence and i think i think he presents kind of lily and gish at the end as like i don't know and she's like the one uncorrupted person in the film i think she's the one like true like altruist in the film and i think she seems to be the one person who i think he would say is like i don't know is is like a believer in god's word for the right reasons you know what i mean there's nothing there's nothing at all um I know there's nothing at all. There's certainly nothing at all like crass about it the way there is about the Reverend, and there's nothing at all surface level um, like there is for some of the townspeople who are so easily won over by, like you said, a, a not all that impressive uh, oratory on the the nature of love and hate. What's what is Gish's name? The character's uh, name? I can't remember the character's name. Uh, okay, well sh- she uh, she's not the representation of love and good because she's not because she's like ignorant to like the evil in the world she seems to have gone through like a long life filled with kind of pain and like kids being orphans and seeing like the worst sides of humanity but has ultimately come to the conclusion that like good still prevails but she does have to use the tools of like evil like a shotgun to kind of influence other people to like follow that path because you can't always convince somebody with your words that like right now you need to leave the house or you're gonna die and she ends up having to like i don't know use like the kind of devilish tools in order to like i don't know enforce good which is like maybe that like from the outset the world is corrupted and you have to use those corrupted tools in order to like be a be a god cop Uh uh-huh right she is ultimately kind of a god cop in the end i was totally i i I, it completely had slipped my mind that this becomes like a Christmas movie at the end. Uh, yeah. Fitting, fitting, considering we're recording this on December 25th. On 20, uh, yep. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas, Shane. everyone. Merry yep. Christmas, Bennett. <laughs> Bennett, um, it's been a wonderful time recording this episode three times with you. Uh, Is there any, any, other, uh, any other comments you had about this movie? Anything that just kind of stood out to you? Anything that struck you? Or is there any parting words you want to uh, give to our wonderful listeners and enjoyers of splittoothmedia.com and real route uh no i would say uh check out night of the hunter uh it's really uh it's really truly a one-of-a-kind film if there's any movie you're gonna watch um about uh 
duplicitous murderer this uh, holiday season, make it the Night of the Hunter. And that's a real wrap. And that's a real wrap. Thank you for listening. Go check us out on patreon.com slash real wrap for more episodes. And go check out splittoothmedia.com to see a very special essay by Bennett G, my co-host here, about the movie Martin by George Romero. And go check out my letter to the director of Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, which is up on Split Tooth Media by the time this episode comes out. I wrote it by hand, and I'd appreciate if you checked it out. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time.